Today's Spotlight is brought to you in part by presenting sponsor, Busey Bank. Busey, your dream, our promise. I'm Jane Wernett, and today I'm joined by leaders of four local nonprofit organizations, each support and deliver educational programming and services to the children of our community. For the next hour, we are going to discuss how COVID-19 has impacted their ability to deliver their missions right here in Naperville and how they pivoted to meet those challenges. Welcome back. And I'd like to introduce you to the four leaders who are going to be in this conversation with me today. I'm going to start out with Wendy Gutch. She's the executive director of the Naperville Education Foundation. And then Alicia Johnson. She's the executive director of the Indian Prairie Education Foundation. I have Raina Tomeo Calabrese. She's the president and CEO of Napa Settlement. And then I have Andrea Wilds with us. She's the president and CEO of DuPage Children's Museum. So welcome, super glad to have you all with me for this conversation. So obviously on March 21st, when the stay at home order went into place uh, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, that was a big, big adjustment for all of us in the world and certainly all of us in the not-for-profit space. And I wanna talk a little bit as we start out as to the impact that that had immediately on each of your individual organizations and how you've sort of pivoted to adjust to that. And Wendy, I'm gonna start right out with you. How did the NEF respond? Well, I think even just the days leading up to uh, the 21st were really impactful already. Um, we had an event planned at one of our major fundraising events that we had to cancel and we canceled it on the 12th. Um, and then the school district announced that they were closing schools uh, beginning the 14th. So there was a lot happening um, before the 21st. Then we went to e-learning our school district on the 17th. So there was a lot of challenges and a lot of anxiety that all of us were having. Um, canceling an event like that, a major fundraiser, um, so close to the time of the date uh, that we were having it was really scary. Our programs depend on our funding um, and we knew our families out there were gonna need our support um, probably more than they ever had before. Um, right now we have nearly 16% of our uh, student population come from low-income families. So the, the idea that, um, you know, some people might not be going to work, um, that, was, that was frightening for all of us. And we really wanted to make sure that we were in the position to support the needs of our students and their families, but also, you know, in the coming school year, how are we going to support grants and all the great innovative projects that our teachers have? So there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of um, feeling of how we're gonna handle this. But um, very quickly, we decided to um, take an existing program that we had, um, have conversations with the district and move that program expanded into a crisis fund. And really by the 21st, when the stay at home order came, we were already in full swing of a fundraising um, initiative to support our families, um, as well as I think by the 17th, excuse me, by the 21st, we had 17 families that were already benefiting from our funding. That's an amazing result and, and a very yeah. quick action. And I know we work with you, Wendy, on that event and uh, you handled it with a lot of grace. So good for you. Thanks. Alicia, what was happening in your school district across, across the way there? Well, a lot of the same things that Wendy had mentioned, you know, a lot of panic uh, right at the beginning, a lot of anxiety, a lot of sadness, really. Um, and just trying to raise everyone up, reassure everyone that we would get through this um, and that things would be okay. So, um, you know, we also gathered um, and we had an existing program such as District 203 but our kid essentials. So, you know, even though everyone was going through the pandemic and the crisis mode, we were so very proud and grateful how the community came together when our families in need, almost 150 homeless families at District 204 has, were facing even bigger challenges during the pandemic. So again, very quickly put together strategy and plan, work very closely with District 204 administration, 
put the word out there, had to be creative with uh, marketing and communication. And once that word hit, wow, the response was absolutely amazing. So for that, we are extremely grateful. Um, but yes, uh, similar situation, um, you know, we have to come together and regroup and look at how uh, things are laid out a little bit different, um, differently due to the pandemic. So um, continuing to work on um, strategies and innovative ideas as we move through the summer and look towards the fall. Yeah, and I think I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to chat with both Dan Bridges and Dr. Karen Sullivan. And I think one of the things that they emphasized is that oftentimes people in this community don't realize the level of supportive services that are being given to at-risk families within both school districts on an ongoing basis. So when you move to e-learning and remote, uh, that certainly put a whole different light on how to deliver that support, right? Yes, absolutely. And I can say without a doubt um, that I was very impressed. Um, the parent community was very, very grateful um, for really the plan that District 204 already had in place as we had moved to e-learning uh, in case of snow days. Never thought that we would need to move to e-learning due to a pandemic. No one did. Um, but uh, things were already set and in motion and a plan was in place. So for that, also very grateful. Um, it, the transition was extremely smooth. And, um, you know, we just tried to provide not only that educational piece, but the health and wellness piece as well to those families that might be suffering, um, you know, in addition to um, their situation due to the pandemic. Yeah, well, I think it's terrific. And Andrea, I know, you know, your doors, when they're open, you have so many laughing children coming through those doors and uh, enjoying all of your exhibits at the DuPage Children's Museum. What was your response when this happened? What did the Children's Museum need to do? Wow. Um, well, we had to do a lot of thinking, but fortunately it caught us in kind of mid-pivot um, where we were already uh, doing a lot of strategic planning around how to increase our connections with our community, ensure that everybody got the benefit of play that DCM is so good at, at building. So, you know, the exhibits in, the, in this space are fabulous. They're built with a great deal of intentionality uh, to ensure that everybody has that access to play but everybody can't come to our building. And even if, uh, even when we're <laughs> outside the pandemic, it was already an issue. Uh, there are barriers for folks. So we were already in the process of thinking about how do we ensure that we're relevant and we're helping all families, including those in need, uh, access the early learning and support uh, that play brings to their families without coming to the building. So since then, uh, so when, when the pandemic hit, uh, and we had to close the doors, we made the very intentional decision that that does not mean that we're closed. We're open for business and we needed to think more, even more concretely about the strategies to reach families who are not where they are, which is what we always need to do, but now they were in isolation. So how do we use um, virtual technology, digital online resources to do what we do best, which is about developing relationships with families, helping the families deliver, uh, develop their own relationships. So how do we take digital, uh, that digital presence from, it, it's not just about, uh, you know, museums used to think about uh, going online and having a digital strategy about, oh, we can reach billions and billions. Um, this is about leveraging our relationships with the audiences here, building connections where they are, and continuing to do what we do well. And making sure that early learning through play, uh, it has the opportunity to be the stress reducer that we know it can be for families. So we, uh, in, in, so we decided that what we are gonna build is going to be sustained. We didn't wanna take a Band-Aid approach. So we have pivoted into a kind of a strategic sprint uh, with focuses on play to learn everywhere. Not, uh, not just play to learn home, play to learn everywhere, not just play to learn at DCM, everywhere. And strengthening our partnerships with um, those on the front lines. 
there are gaps. We know that, um, you know, right now there is such an important focus on food and shelter, the absolute need, human needs that people have. And what we also know is that some of our partners on the front line, as they're focusing on that, they also know that these families need support around early learning. So we are very much focused on where are the gaps that we can serve. We're talking to our partners in the community. We're working with homeless shelters and uh, folks that are providing shelter to homeless folks and food pantries and identifying where can our supports come in to make sure that play is considered that essential human need because you know, look, this is the childhood that many that these little ones have, you know, 80% of their brain development is happening during that first two years, their childhood's not on pause, as you mentioned earlier. So now um, it's for us to help those in isolation and as they emerge from isolation, give the appropriate continue to give the appropriate focus to their little ones. Yeah, I think you raised such a good point, Andrea, in the fact that, you know, whether you're a nurse, a doctor, support staff at the hospital, you're in the police or the fire department or any of the frontline social service agencies, uh, they too are parents and, and uh, have children. And uh, so it's not, it's not only about supporting them as human beings, but then also supporting those support structures, as you point out. So that's right. I think uh, that's been something I think for all of us to learn. I, I thought it was interesting when Dan Bridges talked about remote learning and he's like, yes, and I'm also a teacher at home as well, you know, and, and this is what has been such a very unique part of this whole experience, I think, for everybody. Raina, what happened at the settlement? You know, for us, it came a lot earlier than the 21st. Uh, for us, we gave uh, the instruction to our staff to work and to begin working remotely on the 12th. And uh, at the time, as you all know, we as the museum are many things, and one of the important things that we are is a very critical part of informal learning and informal education. And throughout the academic year, we work with both of our school districts, but certainly with another 110 school districts throughout Northern Illinois on uh, programs that are related to the learning that happens in schools. And so the field trips that we have are field trips that have a pre, a during the field trip visit and a post. And one of the big challenges for us is that we had already slated another 700 children that were to come uh, in the latter half of March and about 6,000 other children would be coming to us in April. And there is a whole lot of just logistics that have to come into play and that you have to backtrack from to ensure that, that we're doing what we need to do. Are we contacting all the schools? Are we rescheduling the, these? Nobody really knew if we could say, well, okay, let's not do it in March. Let's put it off till May. Can we do it in May? And there was a lot of guessing about how these things could be rescheduled and whether obviously we would be returning some of the funding. And, but you know, far beyond that, throughout the year they've been learning and they're waiting for this moment to see it, to touch it, to feel it, to experience it. And that isn't gonna happen anymore. They're not gonna have the cool bus ride during school. They're not gonna have that memory. And as you know, neighbor settlement is truly a part of people's childhood here. How many people do we know that said, yes, I remember my field trip. It's almost a rite of passing. And so there is a sense of, I don't want you to miss out. Um, I don't want you to have that memory 10 years from now or 12 or 20 when you say, yes, I know everybody else went, but we didn't get to go because of COVID. And that was the immediacy of the logistics. The second part of that was, well, what do we do now? How do we teach the children that are in our care uh, through this informal education? And so one of the things that we, I am extremely proud of our staff because we have annual plans. So we have our five-year long range plan and we have our annual plans and those annual plans are set and ready to go in January and we begin to execute. And all of a sudden in March, that was all gone. And we did need to pivot very, very quickly. And 
there was a sense of how do we help them emotionally and how do we help them scholastically? And so our uh, learning experience team and our curatorial team came together and they developed online programming uh, that would essentially cover these large gaps. Um, one of them was through journaling. Uh, the other one is through things like artifact of the day and presenting um, through books and other learning tools, how we could at least give them a certain experience um, and how we can provide for the families when they're in isolation and they're thinking, how do I also deal with the emotions that my child is feeling and that I'm feeling? Well, one of the best ways to do that is really to write them down and how the process of journaling happens and what you can gain both emotionally and as historical data for us is amazing. And so our team did an excellent job and then our marketing team did a, a, also a phenomenal job of marketing out the ability to do all of this um, uh, journaling and coming together as a family to learn about history and also to learn that you are in a historic moment, that you have to write this down, that you have to save this because this is the history of the world. And I think they did a phenomenal job uh, in, in terms of that. But for us, from a logistic point of view, it was, it was a lot um, <laughs> It was a lot to handle. What do we do with the 13 acres? Uh, we have to start mowing. We have to weed. Um, there's so many things that we have to do. The butterflies are going to be coming. And, you know, did we set that part of our uh, experience? Is it, is it ready? So when they do come, we can still do what we're supposed to be doing. Um, so it, it was just a, a lot of moving pieces, moving extremely quickly all at once. Sure. And I think, you know, it's interesting because as you talk, I mean, obviously you and Andrea have physical locations that you have to upkeep, whereas Alicia and Wendy, uh, not so much the physical, but it's it's that uh, very critical part of being able to fund all of those pieces. So um, I'm, I'm going to kind of pivot a little bit uh, and start with Wendy in terms of just if you would a little highlight in terms of as you went through April and May, um, what did you do to continue to deliver your mission? Well, as I said earlier, we started um, a crisis fund. It's called the Kid Booster Crisis Fund, and we launched it on March 16th. Um, and so really our focus really for all of, of April and, and May was um, getting funds for this fund so that we could support our families. Um, we know that if kids are hungry, um, if they are dealing with anxiety and things within their home life that are very stressful, that that can impact their ability to learn. And certainly with remote learning, that has its own challenges as well. <laughs> so we wanted to be able to make sure that we could, you know, offer support to our students and families so that they were ready to learn. Um, and so our focus was really driven on promoting that fund, but we also had you know, scholarships going on for seniors. We had lots of other things happening as well that were, that we were having to kind of communicate in a different way. We did a lot more on social media than we ever have before. We were just running some statistics um, on that. And the bulk of our whole uh, school year of social media was really um, in April and May. <laughs> Yeah. So we were heavily there. Um, we were doing e-newsletters, um, phone calls. Our board was very involved with trying to um, help as well, thanking our donors. We were so incredibly grateful for the community support that came around to, to really wrap their arms around what we were doing. Mm -hmm. um, but we were doing it from home. Yeah. And we're a very small team. Um, I'm the only full-time person. Um, we all have our own families at home. I'm now sharing an office with my husband. So, you know, <laughs> you know that, that has that's, its own challenges. Challenge. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that's like the rest of the world, right? We're all adapting. We're all um, being flexible. And that's really what it's taken. And, um, you know, I'm kudos to my team as well. We were all very mission driven. And all we really cared about was, you know, helping as many families as we possibly could. Just kind of a, a, a high note for you, or maybe even as you're looking ahead, 
Absolutely. Well, in a similar fashion to uh, what Wendy said and into District 203, and as I mentioned before, um, our district also stepped up and um, we really focused uh, as a district, district administration, and also as a foundation to, um, to, to really focus on those families in need. And so really our campaign, our Kid Essentials campaign, uh, was in full force in April and May, and the outpouring of support was absolutely amazing. So um, just really focusing on that as well as um, being creative with that communication. So we wanted to make sure that our parent community knew that we were still, still in existence. We were still here. We were still working for their students and finding ways um, to uncover new types of funding. We wanted to make sure that we were still connected with our staff. We have a very close relationship with our staff. We're a big, big district, um, geographically wise and numbers wise, but we are very close. Um, so we wanted to make sure and keep that connection and just really with the community, um, with the District 204 community in general. So a lot of communications um, reassuring that um, things were going to be okay um, and that we would pick ourselves up. Um, it might look a little bit different, um, but we would come up with a plan and that we would be here for the district and the students and the staff of 204. I think that's so important. And you both talked about, I know you work very sort of one man shop, one woman shop, if you will, right? But Andrea, you, you have a large staff and you have a lot of volunteers that are really critical to making the DuPage Children's Museum work. Talk a little bit, if you would, about the impact that it had for that part of your organization. It's had a very significant and uh, difficult impact. Um, we were very fortunate in that we did receive a PPP loan um, to help us bridge um, through kind of the most difficult period. Uh, but the reality is that we can't look to reopen until phase four of Re Restore Illinois. And even then, we're not going to do it unless we believe it will be safe to do so for our staff and our guests. So that means that you know we have a number of people whose only role is to um, work with our guests when they're in the building. So we are having a wave of uh, lay layoffs that have um, we've given notice, but they're not effective until June 30th. Um, because it's our job now to make sure that we are um, stewarding um, this institution um, for the long haul. Um, nobody really knows how long this is going to be, and it's it's difficult for children's museums across the country in that, you know, when we have this wave, this feeling of opening up again, but the business of being a children's museum um, is very much uh, antithetical to social distancing. Um, you know, little ones by their very nature <laughs> want to run and explore, and it's our role to help encourage that. Um, so we can't get in the business of policing too much. Um, now, we are absolutely developing plans for what reopening uh, will look like and are communicating with the DuPage Health Department and the, the Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity at the state to identify what that could look like. Um, but just like every other museum and uh, children's museum in the country, um, we have to make some really hard decisions about what the operations of the building part of our business will look like. And that's why it's really important that we run hard in both, uh, on both paths. Um, one, continuing to steward um, our, our, first of all, our finances, but also what our building presence will be when we do get to um, invite and welcome our guests and families and little ones back in our building. But again, making sure that we are building out the strategies to connect with them where they are now. So um, a lot of that work is ongoing. We have some fabulous things on all of our social media feeds um, to support parents through this, amaz this amazingly uh, unusual time. Because as you've all mentioned, I mean, people are at home and they're sharing spaces. Um, I just got off a call um, with the leadership team and, you know, one of my staff is, you know, the three-year-old is in the background and he's having to do a puppet to try to, you know, entertain and engage just an enormous amount of, of stress for folks. And so we're trying to do what we can to support that. 
Um, and we don't know what it, how long we're going to be uh, have our doors closed, but we know that we're going to remain committed to our strategies to impact um, our families, particularly our at-risk communities where they are, um, and that's going to sustain beyond our doors opening. Well, I think, Andrea, you brought up um, a really good point that I want to dive into a little bit more about that reopening and, and the fluidity of the situation. But we're going to take a quick break for a few short messages, and then we'll be right back with more Spotlight. For more than 150 years, you've believed in Busey. Today, more than ever, we believe in you. To our healthcare workers, first responders, and local businesses, you're central to the communities we're proud to call home. Busey's grateful to partner with you and your families through life's ups and downs, today and for generations to come. Because as neighbors helping neighbors, we're in this together. Busey, grateful to serve the communities we call home. to Spotlight. I'm joined today by both the NEF, the IPEF, the DuPage Children's Museum, and Napier Settlement. And we're having a conversation about the impact of COVID on childhood development and education. And we're going to pick up where Andrea sort of left off, which is really about the tough decisions that uh, certainly the, both the museums have had to make. They're staffed by a lot of people because they're physical spaces, engaging with a lot of little ones uh, and a lot of volunteers. And, and that's difficult, particularly as the reopening plan is still very fluid. Uh, Raina, talk to us just a little bit, if you would, about kind of what you see coming ahead. I mean, Andrea mentioned we're not two phase four. There's still a lot of questions there, a lot of decisions that have to be made. What are you seeing at the settlement? What are you thinking? Well, for, for us at the settlement, there are three big areas in terms of how do we return to work. Uh, we certainly have to look at our staff and the safety of our staff and what do we do with them. We also have to look at the safety and the concerns that we can have for our visitors. How do they get the experience that we are hoping that they have and how do they experience history, uh, but in a safe manner? So for example, if you only have eight people uh, in, in, in one space, can you really develop the programming that you're looking to develop? So can we do an underground <laughs> railroad with eight people around? And if we can, does that mean we have to have 12 of them a day instead of one? Because we want to have the experience for everyone. Do we have to have time ticketing so that you only come for two hours and that's the maximum time that you can be with us? Those kinds of um, questions and certainly the safety, of course. And then it is the, the other portion of that plan is really the site itself. As you know, the buildings that we have are artifacts in and of themselves. And so we have to disinfect them, we have to clean them, and we have to do all the things that we are being asked to do given COVID and the pandemic, but we can't take an artifact and say, let's just put bleach on it, it'll be fine. So there is a lot of work that has had to be done by our curatorial team, uh, attending and also presenting at a national level in our museum field to learn and understand some of those other best practices of how can you get the disinfecting done without pouring bleach on a historical artifact. So we go through a very large gamut. Um, we also, it, for us, it's a sad moment because during the summertime, we usually have somewhere between six to eight interns that come 
and spend the summer with us. Uh, they are interns for a variety of things. They are interns from everything from finance to event planning to certainly uh, museum field areas. And we know that this was that shot, that opportunity that they had that was an important part of the path that they were taking in their education. And we've had to say, we're sorry, we can't have you. And no matter how much we can tell them, you can come back next year. It, the moment is lost for them. And for us, it's, it's, a, it's a big loss. In terms of our volunteers, I will also say that we have roughly about 2,000 volunteers a year, sometimes a little bit more. And they're there because they love the site, because they love the piece that they're involved in, whatever that is, whether it's our summer school programs or whether it's our events, they are there to engage and be part of that anchor in our community. And for them, it's also a big loss because we have to say no. No. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a sadness around it um, that is very deep. Yeah, I think in, uh, you know, for many people, and I think I, I so appreciate you pointing out things that maybe we don't think about in terms of, you know, disinfecting and you've got historical artifacts. I think that's really, you know, something that maybe we didn't even consider. I think in Andrea's case, you know, the thought of, you know, 10 little ones, it doesn't matter how good they are. They're all touching and hugging and doing all that wonderful stuff that little kids love to do. It's very hard to explain uh, social distancing to a two and three year old. Uh, you know, the schools, you talk about historic moments and obviously we, there's been a lot of conversation about the class of 2020 and uh, the, the, all the rites of passage that they missed uh, in this school year. As you as education foundations look forward, I mean, school is closed now, uh, but your work is not done in the summer. As you sort of look ahead in the next three months, what are some of the things that you've sort of learned in the last three months that you're taking forward with you that maybe are some of the bright spots that you're looking to as far as planning for what's coming up in the next school year? Wendy, I'll start with you. Um, well, I think that we learned quite a lot. I mean, we learned for one thing that you can't just rely heavily on events in the future. I think as a nonprofit, you really have to diversify the different ways that you're bringing in your funding. Um, we saw that with the cancellation, you know, very closely to a major event. But we've also learned quite a lot about our community, um, about their willingness to support their neighbors. Um, like I said, this fund was launched March 16th, and we've already now raised $200,000, which is amazing. <laughs> um, something we wouldn't have dreamed of. Um, that money is also going out the door very fast as well. We are now uh, providing funds for 105 families within District 203. We're working very closely with our social workers. Um, and I've learned personally quite a lot through our social workers and what they face on what we consider our front lines on a daily basis. Um, they're really there connecting those families with all the different services that are available in our community. And when they can't find something that fits on, or doesn't meet some type of guideline, they come to us as a last resort through our Kid Booster Crisis Fund. So I've learned a lot about what they do. I've learned a lot about um, the partnership and the, the value of that with our school district, more so than ever, because there has been quite a lot of communication between us on an almost daily basis. Um, so as we go forward, I think that we, what we are going to be doing is continuing to um, foster the partnership with our district and our families, um, communicating with our community about the needs in the future because we don't foresee the effects of this just going away overnight. We have a feeling that we're going to see a lot of impact of this in the next school year. Um, we don't know if that's going to manifest in, um, you know, kids having, you know, uh, needs for counseling services. Um, certainly, you know, there's kids who have missed out on sports, missed out on activities, missed out on friendships, um, missed out on a lot of things that may cause them to need extra support. And we want to be in the position to 
support them. So there's a lot of planning and rethinking going on um, in the hopes that we'll be able to be there for our students and families in the coming school year. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, we sort of talk a little bit about the fact that while we've sort of been in this three months, the tsunami of the, uh, that process is still to come. Uh, yeah. You know, we've experienced a lot of things today, but I think we're going to see the aftershocks, if you will, not to mix my weather analogies, but we're going <laughs> to feel the aftershocks of that going forward. So Alicia, yeah. what, give us a, just give us one thing that you feel like at the IPF you've really learned and taken from this last three months that you're going to carry with you into the next. I feel like there's so many things. Um, I think what, one quick thing is that we all just need to take advantage of being able to just take a beat and take a deep breath. I mean, we all run at 100 miles an hour. And I think that, you know, if there could be a silver lining, that is one of them. We are kind of forced, <laughs> right, to, to just be still for a bit. And that has allowed us to, um, to really regroup and for our board to come together and work closely with our building or with our uh, district administration to determine what programming will be just mission critical for next year. I know Wendy had, had mentioned the social and emotional. That's one program that we do provide support for throughout the district. And I think that will be one that will be needed now more than ever. But really just taking that beat, taking that moment to reevaluate, to recraft our message, to look at our mission, um, to look at our goals um, now that we've gone through this pandemic and things look a little bit different. The, the, the culture is just a little bit different out there. So look, taking a look at our, our marketing, our communication, and of course, the one thing that everyone is, is will be meeting a challenge is fundraising, right? So trying to come up with creative and innovative ways, uh, different ways um, to um, provide funding for these programs that are so critical. Um, you know, this a pandemic has affected everyone across the board. So some of our traditional funding sources are just not um, available going forward. So um, having us to sit down as a foundation and find other strategies and other ways has, has definitely uh, been great. Our board has stepped up and uh, we just want everyone to know that um, you know, we are encouraged by the community support. Um, we are uh, looking forward to finding new ways and finding um, solutions. And, um, you know, we're ready, we're ready for, for whatever comes down next. So we will be ready to go in fall. I think that's, uh, I think you bring up a very good point. And, and that is, and, and oftentimes in the nonprofit world, we always have this massive part that's around fundraising. And so, you know, when you have something like this with the pandemic, you're sort of fighting a little bit of a two-fronted war here, right? You're trying to deal with the operational piece that you have just been dealt with. Uh, and then you've got to try to raise funds to pay for the operational piece that you're trying <laughs> to do. So it's very difficult and, and they don't always go in the same direction. I think, Wendy, as you said, as fast as you're raising it, it's going out the door. So, uh -huh. um, Andrea, you talked a lot about, um, you know, learning through play everywhere. And obviously, you were already looking at a strategic plan. What have you learned or what are some of the things that you feel that you and your staff have really uh, taken from this situation that you're excited about? And I know excitement is it's hard, right? Everybody's been in the trenches working really hard. But I also know that you're women of passion and mission. What, what are you excited about as you look forward? that DCM has a remarkably creative team and that energy, energy and excitement are not hard for us. Um, when you have core values that are all about community collaboration, curiosity and creativity, um, that means solution building. Uh, and so we've been able to take those values and think hard about impact. You know, our revenue is 60% through the door. That's how this budget was constructed. Now we have to think about philanthropy in a whole different way. And philanthropy means impact. So again, uh, these, child, these kids, uh, this is their childhood. Uh, there is enormous opportunity for us and their caregivers and our partners in the community to positively impact um, their lives during this time by thinking creatively um, and by reaching them where they are. So for example, learning, um, we're, we, we were going to have a tinkering camp, a live in-person tinkering camp this summer. We can't do it. 
but we can't do it the way we were going to, but we can do it. So we're learning about how to do virtual things, um, how to still make that engaging, how to make that an effective learning process, how to do what the parents need us to do, which is to occupy their children in a fun learning way. So we are evaluating everything and thinking really hard um, to make sure that we are identifying the impact that we're gonna have on little ones, uh, identifying the impact we're gonna have on building relationships with their caregivers, and that is gonna help us raise the money that we need to stay alive. Because you know what? We are gonna get through this. The day will come. You know, As I get older, years go faster. And before you know it, we will be sitting here a year from now. And I have faith that we will all be open for business in every way possible. And I don't think for a hot second that this community or any other community with the Children's Museum in this country wants to envision coming back without their children's museum. And that means right now giving and, and thinking about what impact giving will have on the sustaining of the impact that can be had now, but also making sure that we're we can open those physical doors for play uh, when we emerge from this time. So yep, we have a tinkering camp coming up. We have lots of programs in development. And um, just like Wendy, we, we had a gala. Our big fundraiser was gonna be in early April. And of course that went away, but now it's June 20th. So it's very different than it has been. It's a virtual gala, but we'll, we're still doing it. And I tell you, um, this is the best board imaginable. Um, I am so impressed. Uh, it's one of the key reasons that I was excited to join the DuPage Children's Museum. Um, they are fully engaged in the community and they are gonna make this a successful ga uh, gala because what we do is about being that, uh, being that resource for the families that want to come here to Naperville and our surrounding communities because of our collective commitment uh, to children and families. I think um, very well said, Andrea. And I think one of the things we've all seen through this pandemic is a redefinition of what is essential service. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we think about uh, some of those pieces as the nice extras. I think if you were to ask a parent right now of a five-year-old, they would say absolutely having that opportunity to learn through play, come do visit at the neighbor settlement and go through those wonderful exhibits. That is essential. It's essential to their child's learning and development and frankly, their own sanity. We're getting close to wrapping up here. So I wanted to just have an opportunity to ask each of you as a personal uh, uh, thought, what has been something that you have really taken away uh, from this moment in time? For you as, as Raina, I'm going to start with you, in your role as the CEO and president of Napa Settlement, but it, as Raina, a person of our community, what has been your biggest, best outtake from this? People can truly now understand when we say history matters, that it matters that it isn't some beautiful look back to what it was like when you were a kid only, but that truly speaking, I think this is one of those moments when you can look around and you can firmly say that the future rests very much on the rails of history. That people today are asking, well, why did this happen? Why are we here? How did this happen? And that the answers, whether it's the medical answers, whether it's the political answers, whether it's the social answers, that they have to go back and look at the medical history of the 1820 pandemic, um, that they have to look at the 1720 and the Middle Ages. And that as we come forward and we look at all this, that we say, we were here before. We were here before as a person, as an institution, as a community, and not sure how they made it from you know, 1920 to 1930, but somehow they did. And that gives us, I think, um, as people that, that need for resiliency. I think for me, that's one of the most important parts. And the second part for me personally, you know, I came to, 
I came to the museum world as a lawyer. Um, my, my job was something very different. I did international technical legal assistance in every part of the world that you can think about. And the reason that I did that is because I believe that it is just as imperative to feed the human soul as it is to feed the human body. When you give people education, when you give people hope, resiliency, all those adjectives, when, when you are able to be part of how they reflect, how they think, and you can impact that, you have not maybe given them a meal that day, but you have given them the, the desire to have a meaningful life and to connect to the human experience. And I think that's what we do um, very well as, as a museum. And for me, as people, this is where I find my passion, my need. This is why I go out and look for money. I am not apologetic to anyone <laughs> when everyone may, may say, but, you know, but the homeless. And I said, yes, the homeless are important and we have to deal with that. But if you think that you have done your job simply by feeding them that night, you haven't done your job. You have to make sure that you can help them see a future, a good one, that you can help them understand who they are as people or as communities. And for me, really, that's what drives the passion in terms of what we do and why we do it. <laughs> and this has been one of those very raw emotional moments in history. And it really brings forward this message in a very visible way and this understanding for me in a very visible way that you've got a big important job, Raina. You better feed that human soul because if you're not doing that, you're not doing your job. Thanks, Raina. I, I, I think you just really talked so much about us being in this historic moment. And I think all of us, you know, maybe weren't thinking about that when it all first started, but we are actually living through a piece of unique history. Uh, I think that speaks to the journaling. I think it speaks to just kind of keeping track of how we're personally dealing with it. And so, Alicia, what has been one of those silver linings for you or something that you have kind of learned and taken with you through this process? Absolutely. Well, I'm, I not only work uh, within District 204, but I'm also a 204 parent. I have two um, high school students. So um, I think just professionally, um, I've just been so proud of our district and how they have been able to step up and provide e-learning very seamlessly and quickly, as well as uh, had to become creative with delivering uh, graduation boxes and keeping that celebration going for all of our staff that are retiring, etc. From a personal perspective, there is a reason I did not go into uh, education and teaching in a classroom. I have the utmost respect for these teachers that have gone above and beyond to provide continued and consistent learning for our students through e-learning and all the challenges that that brings. And lastly, it just has really given me the opportunity to spend some quality time with my kiddos. I don't know if they'll agree, but I have certainly enjoyed that time that this whole situation has, has provided. I think that's uh, something we've heard repeated uh, is this whole idea of that slowing down and getting back to family time in a way that the hustle and bustle uh, oftentimes doesn't allow or we choose not to take it, right? And I think that has certainly been something that has also pivoted a lot. Wendy, what's your learning? What's your silver lining? Well, I think that um, really it's a reminder that flexibility and the ability to adapt to change is so important in our professional and in our personal lives. Um, what we've seen with our school district and the, the pivots that they made to, to adapt, um, to see what our children have been doing to adapt and pivot to learn in a different way, um, what our organization is doing to raise funds in a different way, all of that was is a reminder that flexibility is so important. And I think also personally, um, just similar to what Alicia was saying, as a parent, I'm spending way more time with my kids now than I ever have before. Um, and I really value that. We've spent, um, we've had more dinners together probably in the last couple of months than we have um, in the last two years. <laughs> um, so I'm grateful for that. Um, and it's certainly uh, a memory that I will cherish. I think that's true, right? And I think um, that's the thing that really helps us move from crisis to hope 
is what are those things that we're grateful for? Andrea, what have you been grateful for and learned during the last few months? Well, you know, really what you just said, crisis to hope. I mean, crisis, uh, implicit in crisis is something bad is happening. Um, but the best part of crisis is it frequently builds community. Uh, and we've had a whole lot of crisis going on here, both uh, with respect to COVID and with George Floyd and everything that's been going on. But I think we've all been able to see that from that coming together, a shared uh, understanding, a recognition of we need to pull together here, um, that does build a sense of community. And personally, uh, just getting to live through all of this with, um, with my new team at DCM, uh, it's been a remarkable time to see the resilience and the creativity of individual team members and the collective coming together to think about the best path forward. Because uh, that's really all we, we can, any of us can do is think strategically about making the most positive impact out of the crisis at hand. And there's a lot of good to come out of this. We just have to focus on getting there. Yeah, I think that's, it's a journey, right? But I also think you all talked to something about that shared experience. And um, I wanna say thank you to all of you, to Raina, to Wendy, to Alicia, and to Andrea for sharing your stories of your not-for-profits and what you have experienced thus far and what your hopes are going forward. Uh, it's really been an amazing conversation of things that we don't often think about, whether that's how to disinfect uh, archives, archival things, how to keep small little ones uh, safe in social distancing, how to get that philanthropy going so we can continue to support those critical social services for the students within our school districts that need that help. And uh, I have no doubt in my mind that as we go through this together, uh, through the shared experience, that we will come out as a not-for-profit community as well as a larger community better stronger, more agile, more compassionate, and more empathetic. And I am excited and grateful to be in it with all of you. So thank you for joining me today on Spotlight. Today's Spotlight is brought to you in part by presenting sponsor, Busey Bank. Busey, your dream, our promise.